This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Today, I'll be visiting with Dr. Alan Zaharias. After completing medical school in his native Mexico City, he came here to St. Louis and did his residency and fellowship at Barnes-Jewish Hospital and Washington University School of Medicine. After training, he spent some time in France working with Dr. Alan Cribier to learn advanced percutaneous valve replacement techniques. Currently, he is the co-director of the Valve Center here at Washington University School of Medicine. And he took the time to talk with me about transcatheter aortic valve replacement, more commonly known as TAVR. We start with discussing a case, then review general principles when evaluating someone for TAVR, and then wrap up by discussing about where the field is heading. My name is Alan Zacharias, and I'm the co-director of the Center of Valvular Heart Disease at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Great. Yeah, thanks for meeting with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So maybe first start with just presenting like a short case. Sure. This is a a 60-year-old African-American male. He's got a history of diabetes and hypertension, a mild non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, and he had mild aortic stenosis. And that was known about a year ago. Then maybe like a month prior to the most recent presentation, he's referred to you out of concern for low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis. And so he shows up, you know, with a CD in hand uh, to have that evaluated. He notes that over the last year, he's been doing fine until a couple of months ago where there were a couple of episodes where he was getting and where he felt almost lightheaded, almost to the point of passing out, didn't totally pass out. He had to sit down for a bit and it goes away. Doesn't have any overt heart failure symptoms like orthopnea or PND, lower extremity edema, and doesn't complain of any chest pain during those times. He has some minimal shortness of breath. He also has this non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. His ejection fraction is 45%. Um, and then on exam, he just has a small two out of six systolic murmur and like a, a late peaking S2. So with that kind of patient, what are things that you're looking at first, like globally speaking, before you're thinking about, oh, does he have aortic stenosis and do I need to intervene for him? So, you know, this is an interesting patient that probably has a couple of uh, clinical findings or disease states that will contribute to his symptoms. He was diagnosed with aortic stenosis a year ago, and it was mild at that time. It is very unlikely that uh, aortic stenosis progresses dramatically over a short amount of time. So that would make it less likely that this is a cause of severe symptomatic aortic stenosis. Mm -hmm. He does have a history of a cardiomyopathy, which can progress with time. And as a result, it would be concerning to me to find out if the cardiomyopathy has worsened. But at this point in time, I can't really say that he has one or the other. And I think it's just important for us to examine him and get an EKG, find out if his rhythm has changed, find out if there are any other physical findings that give us a clue, whether it's pointing in the direction of a heart failure component or of a severe aortic stenosis component or things of that nature. Gotcha. Maybe on that point where he said he had an echo a year ago showing mild aortic stenosis, and this would be too quick to progress to that point. What's kind of the time frame that you would expect someone to prevent, progress from 
either mild to severe or moderate to severe? Like, what's kind of your expectation for that disease course? I mean, if somebody truly has mild aortic stenosis, it is unlikely they'll progress to severe aortic stenosis in up until maybe a matter of five to seven years. Uh, we normally think that the aortic valve area will decrease by 0.04 centimeters squared per year. Um, so it's relatively slow progression. Okay. Uh, he was referred here, and he actually went for a dobutamine stress echo. He's seen over in the clinic. And that showed that he had a mean gradient of 40 millimeters of mercury, and then he had a peak velocity of 4.3 meters per second. This was at rest or with dobutamine? This was with dobutamine. Yeah. So maybe, so, and what's the, yeah, so what are the caveats here? So with dobutamine, and then also if that was on the case of him at rest. So if somebody has a mean gradient of 40 millimeters of mercury or greater at rest, that potentially gives them the diagnosis of severe aortic stenosis. Okay. Now, when we order a dobutamine stress echo on patients for the evaluation of uh, aortic stenosis to rule out the presence of pseudo-severe AS or to evaluate for contractile reserve, what we're looking for is two things. One is we evaluate what the change in the stroke volume is to find out if the patient has contractile reserve, and we're looking for an increase in 20% or greater of the stroke volume. Okay. Traditionally speaking, when you exercise or when you stress the heart, you are expecting gradients to increase because there's a higher amount of flow that goes through a stenotic segment. Sure. So I am not surprised that the gradients became higher but it would be interesting to know or important to know what the gradients were at rest. Yeah, at rest, I think for him, it was right around 30 millimeters of mercury. So not unexpected that the gradients would increase by 10 mm -hmm. millimeters of mercury because of uh, the higher flow Just rate. Just because we're stressing his heart. Correct. Okay. Um, does that give him the diagnosis of aortic stenosis? No, oh, sorry, of severe aortic stenosis? Um, not sure about that. Uh, traditionally speaking... We say that patients should get a dobutamine stress echo when they have a low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we mentioned an injection fraction, but we didn't really mention what the stroke volume or the stroke volume index was. Um, and traditionally speaking, we don't necessarily send patients routinely for a dobutamine stress echo when they have uh, um, a low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis if their ejection fraction is greater than 40%. Mm. And in your case, the patient did have uh, an EF of 45% or so. Yeah. So I don't exactly know what to make of the increase in gradients, but the one thing that would be important to know is, well, what has happened to his dimensionsless index? That is mm. the ratio of the left ventricular outflow tract time velocity integral over the aortic valve time velocity integral. Um, if your ratio is less than 0.25, that definitely will suggest the presence of severe aortic stenosis. Okay. So that's a, a very important piece of information that we didn't really talk about, but it's important for us to make that diagnosis. Gotcha. Okay. Is that a routine measurement that's made on all echoes, a dimensionless index? All or? echoes will have a, all echoes for aortic stenosis will have a dimensionless index uh, reported somehow. It's okay. called an LVOT, aortic VTI ratio, or a dimension, dimensionless index. And when somebody has a cardiomyopathy and we add dobutamine, what we're looking for is we're looking for 
the change in the stroke volume to see if you have contractor reserve and if at a higher uh, at a higher rate of dobutamine you have an increased stroke volume that may mean that your valve will open more and actually will not have severe aortic stenosis you'll have a diagnosis of pseudo severe aortic stenosis okay okay now Stepping back from this case of like one guy who's referred here, maybe more broadly speaking, who are you know good patients that should be referred at least for evaluation for management of aortic stenosis, whether that's versus TAVR or surgical valve replacement, we'll discuss a little bit later. But who are the kind of folks who should be at least referred for an evaluation for that? So, in theory, anybody who has you know severe aortic stenosis or is progressing uh, from moderate to severe or progressing at a fast pace from one of these stages of, uh, of aortic stenosis should likely be evaluated in a valve center. The valve centers will potentially have the option of being evaluated in a multidisciplinary manner by cardiologists and cardiac surgeons to further assess what the best treatment options are. And some treatment options are just medical management and some other treatment options involve some sort of procedures either surgical or catheter-based procedures for a valve replacement strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so currently, I would say any patient who has severe AS or severe valvular disease or anybody who is looking for an, an opinion for complex valve lesions when you have multiple valve problems, you know, should come to a, a, a valve center to be evaluated. Mm-hmm. Okay. But maybe for someone with like mild to moderate aortic stenosis without a lot of symptoms that are probably attributed to that, probably okay to just keep watching and monitoring them. Correct. As long as they have appropriate follow-up with their cardiologist or their internist, that, that's totally a, a very fine place to be to be followed okay. until things change. Gotcha. How many valve centers are there maybe around the country? I know we have one here in St. Louis. but So in order to have a catheter valve replacement program, you need to have a multidisciplinary team meeting. So in theory, any center that offers a TAVR procedure will have a a multidisciplinary meeting and group of some sort. So there's as many as there are valve centers. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Let's also touch a little bit about people with comorbidities as well. Now let's talk about, you know, the kind of patients that we have. You know, they have severe aortic stenosis and the question, and they're, you know, very symptomatic, you know, maybe having some syncope. And now the thought is we should intervene in some way. What are the major comorbidities that you're looking for? to help you decide versus a transcatheter approach versus a surgical approach? So we look for many things and it's done. We're, we're moving away from the comorbidity perspective as opposed to maybe an anatomy, an anatomy perspective currently. Okay. So today in 2017, there is FDA approval for transcatheter valve replacement for any patient who is considered high risk to undergo surgical valve replacement, who is inoperable or of extreme risk. And, or sorry, who is who of a moderate risk or intermediate risk. So that basically states that anybody who has an SDS risk predicted of mortality of 3% or greater is potentially a candidate for transcatheter valve replacement. Um, For the patients who are not meeting this criteria, which means that they are low risk, then these patients can potentially be studied in a clinical trial, but there's no commercial indications for transcatheter valve replacement. Okay. Now... Patients who are of extreme risk or of very high risk, um, we also need to be certain that we perform valve replacement if their life expectancy is to be greater than one year. 
if the life expectancy because of the other comorbidities is not greater than one year, then it is not likely they would benefit from having a valve replacement procedure because they won't necessarily reap the benefits of it. Yeah. And the other things that we look for for patients who have who are of extreme risk or high risk is whether or not they're one, they're symptomatic with the level of activity that they do and whether or not they're cognizant enough uh, for a, a change in their activity pattern. You know, patients who unfortunately are bedridden or are wheelchair bound or who have a fair amount of cognitive impairment who don't necessarily participate well in their recovery uh, will not be candidates for transcatheter valve replacement just because there is an importance uh, in trying to get them better. And replacing an aortic valve doesn't necessarily mean that we need to replace everybody's aortic valve. We need to be a little more diligent on that perspective. Mm. Okay. A couple of follow-ups from that. So 3% being like the low end, so a greater than 3% risk. 3% still seems pretty low. Does do you, where, where did that number come from? I would have expected maybe like saying a low risk was like less than 5% or maybe even like a less than 10%. So according to the SDS data, which is a pooled, a voluntary pooled data from all cardiac surgeries that are performed in the United States, uh, these, uh, all of the patients that are included into this data set uh, basically will follow for their outcomes depending on X number of, uh, of variables. Okay. And it turned out that the majority of the patients undergoing aortic valve replacement uh, for aortic stenosis probably had an, a 2% risk of mortality. The number of 3 or 4% basically came through an aleatory manner. Uh, when the partner trial was being conducted, the partner 2 trial that specifically dealt with patients of intermediate risk, it was felt that the definition of intermediate risk were those who had an, an operative mortality between 4 and 8%. And then anyone who was less than 4% potentially would be of uh, low risk. The number okay. of 3% then decreased because of the potential presence of other comorbidities or other markers of frailty that may impact recovery, uh, like a low albumin or like inability to uh, dependence in day-to-day -day activities, um, a slow walk or malnutrition. Okay. Okay. Another thought is about this, you know, a greater than one year life expectancy. Is it difficult sometimes to evaluate a patient and say, well, their life expectancy is less because of their valve or it's less than because of, you know, some of these other things. And, and that makes it very difficult. Um, however, there are, are certain patients who we meet who are so debilitated because of their multiple other comorbid conditions uh, that replacing the aortic valve will not necessarily make them healthier or stronger to survive a year. Okay. And then you mentioned that you're switching from thinking about comorbidities to anatomy. So what are the anatomical considerations? So in patients who are appropriate surgical candidates or good surgical candidates, um, a the standard of care is that you know is definitely aortic valve replacement. However, in patients who they can't get a good result because they can't cross down the area, for example, those are not good surgical candidates. The same thing happens with transcatheter valve replacement. Since we're not removing the aortic valve and we're placing a valve inside a calcified structure, if there if there's a problem with size, let's say the valve size that is required is not valve size that's commercially available, then we can't do it. If, on the other hand, there's a lot of calcification 
in nodular calcification, the left ventricular rod flow tract, or other characteristics that would predispose to perivalvular insufficiency or a complication during valve deployment, then in patients who are surgical uh, candidates, we should not uh, offer them an inferior procedure. And that's why it's so important to make sure we can offer both of these patients, mm -hmm. well, these options, sorry. When we evaluate patients in our valve center, you know, they come for evaluation of valve replacement therapies. They're not just come for a transcatheter alternative. Yeah, okay. The also, at least in regards to transcatheter, there's multiple approaches like a transapical, a transfemoral, transaortic as well. So at least from what I see, most I, okay. Most of them that I see are transfemoral. Are there are there leanings towards you know, in the field of trying to just pick one approach, or is it really just an individualized approach depending on the patient's mm -hmm. anatomy? So we've learned that it is better to individualize it to the patient's anatomy. Now, with the improvement of technology, around 90% of the patients can have their procedures done via transfemoral approach. For those who cannot be done through transfemoral approach, then alternative approaches are required. Mm. Okay. And each approach has disadvantages and disadvantages, and from the, the recovery is quicker, the less invasive of a procedure it is. So the recovery is going to be quicker and less painful, with a transfemoral approach or a subclavian approach as opposed to a transaortic or a transapical approach. Hmm. Okay. Are there any firm, hard contraindications to transcathory or valve replacement? So I think it comes to a matter of comorbidities. Once again, if the life expectancy is not one that is favorable after the valve is replaced, then that's a contraindication for transcatheter valve replacement. Traditionally, patients are referred to transcatheter valve replacement either for a severe aortic stenosis or for a degenerated bioprosthetic valve. Um, patients have severe AI, for example, are not routinely considered candidates for transcatheter valve replacement from a FDA-approved indication. Whether or not they're studied in a clinical trial setting, that's a little bit different uh, item. Traditionally speaking, bicuspid aortic valves were excluded from the clinical trials originally, and as a result, are mostly not treated with a transcatheter procedure, as the majority of the patients are in the low to intermediate risk range because of their age group. However, if patients are considered high risk, then they can be treated with a transcatheter prosthesis. Okay. That answers one of the further questions I was going to have about bicuspid valves, because knowing those patients particularly develop aortic stenosis at a younger age, mm -hmm. but they were excluded have... from partner one and partner two. Correct. And okay. even the uh, core valve uh, trial. So traditionally speaking, in the United States, the bicuspid a patient has not been systematically evaluated in a randomized controlled trial. Mm, okay. um, also, patients who require aortic surgery at the time of valve replacement will likely benefit more from a surgical approach than a catheter approach because you would only be treating half of the problem. Yeah, okay. Um, patients who have active infections or infectious endocarditis are not candidates for transcatheter valve replacement because we're not removing the old aortic valve or the mm -hmm. old valve that's diseased. Uh, and as a result, it would be a perfect nidus for further infection in the future. Okay, yeah. Let's talk about a couple of other uh other additional health problems that can cloudy the picture for, so we'll talk about coronary artery disease and then also probably mitral valve problems first. So let's start with coronary artery disease. So I would, yeah, how do you manage somebody with 
severe aortic stenosis, and then let's start with, you know, simple one or two vessel coronary disease, and then also if it's different for multi-vessel coronary disease. That's a great question, and I probably don't have an excellent answer, but I can tell you that it all comes down to risk. Okay. If patients are good surgical candidates and they have the opportunity to being offered complete revascularization at the time of valve replacement, then they should undergo trans a surgical aortic valve replacement with bypass surgery. Okay. If, on the other hand, they are not good surgical candidates because of the elevated surgical risk, then a catheter-based approach is not unreasonable. When we deal with patients who have a coronary disease and have severe aortic stenosis, we mostly try to address the proximal slash more important lesions as opposed to the a side branch type of disease or very distal disease. And as a result, you will not see many patients who would undergo PCI of a end diagonal vessel or the end component of a marginal vessel um, when undergoing transcatheter valve replacement. But we do address proximal lesions of the circumflex, CLAD, or important lesions of that component. Okay. So for the high surgical risk patient who has both you know, aortic stenosis and then like a proximal LAD lesion, do you do that at the same time? Um, it's or a, is it a staged procedure? We've, uh, it depends on the person's risk and acuity. Uh, we normally do it in a staged manner. Um, we want to make sure they're in optimal condition for their valve replacement. Okay. So patients would come in uh, for a, a PCI and then potentially a catheter transcatheter valve replacement one or two weeks later. Oh, okay. Okay. And then how about for the mitral valve? Because mitral regurgitation being also fairly very common. It would seem to me that, you know, somebody with severe aortic stenosis and then also severe mitral regurgitation would benefit from unloading the aortic valve. But in doing some background prior to this, I found that that's maybe not necessarily the case. So patients who have severe by well, patients who have multivalvular disease, traditionally we try to fix the valves that are the most significant okay. or significantly diseased. And I know this may sound repetitive, but it's mostly a matter of risk. Patients who will, who have severe MR and severe aortic stenosis probably would benefit from having both valves treated. If somebody is of extreme risk, let's say they have an like, uh, operative mortality of greater than 10 to 12%, you know, is it unreasonable to just treat one valve, treat the aortic valve and leave the mitral valve alone? It's not unreasonable when patients have very prohibitive risk and their life expectancy is not you know, very long. Um, however, in patients who are much younger, they should definitely get the full the treatment of all their valvular disease. Traditionally speaking, also patients who have functional mitral regurgitation, their MR severity tends to improve in 20 or 30 percent of them after having their aortic valve replaced. Mm -hmm. And as a result, some patients who present with severe MR at the, at the the same setting of severe stenosis will leave the hospital or will have a follow-up in echo after the sorry a, an echo 30 days later after undergoing transcatheter replacement with improving MR severity and lower symptoms. Okay, and then to be clear, when you say it's all about risk, is this STS score risk that was it's generally used for this? Risk. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so surgical risk is mostly assessed by the STS score uh, as it's a a data 
set that has been very well scrutinized and, and published. Um, however, it doesn't include all of the characteristics that are required uh, to fully assess an individual, but it does give us a good guidelines to, to play with. Yeah. I remember there's also some talk about using frailty as a marker for indications. For, so does it, the STS score incorporate frailty or some of those not. measures? So no. The STS uh, score does not incorporate frailty, does not incorporate pulmonary hypertension, does not incorporate cirrhosis or any other anatomical contraindications for surgery. So that is correct. The presence of frailty, which is kind of a, a diffusely uh, defined term, uh, definitely impacts on the survival and the operative risk. And in order, there, there's multiple ways to objectify the frailty concept uh, and multiple ways to test it. Traditionally speaking, one that we use here, which is relatively simple, is we use four metrics. One is related to gait speed. One is related to the ability to perform their independent tasks, the CATS ADL uh, score. Would that just be like a questionnaire sort Simple of thing? Questionnaire. Okay. Mm -hmm. Of six questions of uh, whether patients can dress, bathe, uh, feed um, themselves. Okay. Um, also, we determine an albumin level, and we develop uh, we determine a hand grip strength test. Okay. And if you meet three out of four frailty metrics, then you are considered frail. Um, however, uh, with the newer guidelines from the ACC and AHA on valvular heart disease, it is said that if somebody does have at least one marker of frailty, that may increase their surgical risk as well. So mm. we use that routine. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And then how about after valve replacement? What are the complications that providers should be aware of afterwards. I'm sure there's some immediate post-procedural ones that become evident after a couple of days. Sure. And then possibly, you know, a few months, year out. So from a peri-procedural perspective, we always worry about bleeding from our access site. We worry about the presence of a conduction disease or delays, maybe the need of a permanent pacemaker. Um, the presence of a stroke, a heart attack, or death are probably the most common ones. There are others that have been described relating, uh, you know, annular disruption or left ventricular perforation or right ventricular perforation. Uh, these are much rarer, but they can happen. And then in follow-up, we mostly worry about it's a bioprosthetic valve, so patients should have um, a concern for endocarditis, although it happens rarely. It, you know, does, it can happen. Mm -hmm. And also potentially uh, early valve degeneration or valve thrombosis, which is a concept that has recently been described over the last year or two. That affects both surgical and transcatheter valves. Mm. What is then valve thrombosis? So it's the presence of a thrombus that begins to line either one or two leaflets of the prosthesis that is placed, and it may not necessarily modify valve gradients until it becomes uh, at least two leaflets are uh, are observed, and it mostly responds to anticoagulation therapy. Okay. So I think I probably want to talk about next where, where the field's next? going. Yeah, sure. what's current research and what current trials are ongoing? So there, that's, it's a very exciting field to be in. Um, you know, we moved from the extreme risk or inoperable risk to the high risk to now the intermediate risk, gaining FDA approval for these indications. Uh, we also have had FDA approval indication for a valve-in-valve -valve procedure in the aortic position, which means patients who have a degenerative bioprosthetic valve can be treated with uh, uh, catheter valve prosthesis. How common uh, is that? 
How common do you see patients like that? We probably 10% or 15% of our practice is uh, related to that type of uh, condition. Oh, really? Okay. Um, we also now can treat patients with a degenerative mitral valve prosthesis with a transcatheter valve prosthesis uh, if they're of high risk. Um, now, the next step to study are the patients who are in the low risk. Uh, so there is an, on two ongoing clinical trials that evaluate low-risk patients. One is the PARTNER-3 trial uh, okay. that randomizes patients to surgery versus uh, catheter valve replacement in low-risk individuals. There is also a core valve low-risk trial that is happening simultaneously. There is also the uh, ability to uh, treat patients with a, in a valve-in-valve -valve registry for the aortic and mitral position when they are considered low or intermediate risk as well. So that's ongoing. Uh, there's also a bicuspid registry that is beginning to be opened uh, as well. There are two trials that are also uh, up and running that are exciting. One is called the Early Tower trial, which will randomize patients with severe asymptomatic aortic stenosis to either medical therapy or transcatheter valve replacement. Uh, and uh, that trial actually has a biobank component, so we could potentially determine biomarkers that would predict early degeneration or worsening left ventricular health that may actually promote the, the treatment at an earlier age or an earlier presentation. There's also the TAVR unload trial, which takes patients with evidence of left ventricular dysfunction and moderate aortic stenosis, who then get randomized to optimal medical therapy versus optimal medical therapy and transcatheter valve replacement. Okay. So there's a couple of uh, exciting trials that yeah. are ongoing. And there's obviously the transcatheter mitral valve replacement or transcatheter mitral valve repair options that are also beginning to be available. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. I don't know that I have any You're further welcome. questions. Any, uh, any last thoughts or... I think remarks? it's an exciting field in the field of cardiology and valvular heart disease. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. I am your host, Andrew Perry. I am also the editor and producer of this podcast. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on the album Directionless EP I've used for my theme music is granted under a Creative Commons license under Attribution 3.0. We'll see you next time.